0: And the first six verses, so those are on the screen and I'll read them as well. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And this is the verse that we handed out with the bulletin today. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jody. Welcome this morning to Sunnybrook Christian Church. Um, If I don't know you, my name is Ryan Vincent. I work in our adult ministries here, and it is my pleasure to bring the sermon that goes with the last icon on these signs. Our title of the series has been, He Is. The cross represents the fact that he is Jesus. Michael DeFazio taught that Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. The manger on the top right is from the sermon, He is Emmanuel, God with us. And then last week we heard from Drew Moss on the issue of the dove there, that Jesus is our peace. And today we'll talk about the crown, that he is king. Um, If you've been in church for any period of time, you know the story that Jody just started. So the wise men journey from the east and... uh, They ask, hey, where where is this supposed to happen? They talk to Herod. Herod says, hey, go find him, go find him. Herod has other plans in mind. Jesus is born. The wise men are told in a dream not to go tell Herod what's going on, and they leave by a different route so as to avoid Herod. Um, and then Herod finds out, and uh, just after Joseph and Mary take Jesus off to safety in Egypt, Herod has all the children under the age of two, all the male children under the age of two in Bethlehem killed. Merry Christmas. <laughs> That's the Christmas story here. Um, sometimes, especially when it comes to a story like this that has a little bit of a darker tone, we need to, we need to practice digging a little deeper to get at what is actually happening here. Um, Sometimes if we really want to comprehend the depth of a story, we have to kind of pull some things back and look behind what's actually going on on the surface. Um, It's kind of like, you'll you'll pardon me for likening Christmas to this, but it's kind of like premarital counseling. Um, If you were to ask me to, to officiate your wedding, that's fine. You and I are going to now have a couple of meetings, particularly, you know, the the bride-to-be, the groom-to-be, and me. And we're going to talk through some things as we prepare as best as a handful of conversations can prepare you for this new life you're about to begin together. And uh, at least the way that I do it, I have kind of a minimum of six meetings that we go through, an hour to an hour and a half apiece. And um, we talk of just a, a wide range of topics But beneath all of it, I'm trying to find out for each individual the answer to three specific questions. I want to know what do you love, what do you expect, and what are you afraid of? And if I can find the answers to those questions, I feel like that gives us something really helpful to talk about as you two are about to now join for this new life together. It would have been helpful if somebody had asked A series of questions like that for me and for Rachel when we got married about 13 years ago. Um, I found out by trial and error that my wife loves quiet mornings with coffee and with me not talking. (laughs) She loves that. Um, My wife is a very responsible person. She gets up and gets going with her day. I'm one of those weirdos that I really like to wake up super, super early. And so by the time she's up, I've been up for several hours, I've already had one pot of coffee to myself, I've done some reading, I've caught up on the news, and I have things to say. And she comes out of the bedroom and I'm ready, and she's not. And within just a couple of months of being married, she asked if I would consider a no talking for the first hour policy, (laughs) which worked fine until we had kids, and I can't enforce that anymore. But she loves kind of that quiet alone time. It's good to know that about her. Um, when I'm working with these couples, it's, it's fun to ask them um, questions about their families, the houses they were raised in. Um, and I'm particularly interested hearing them speak about the opposite gender parent, uh, because I can find some, maybe never actually verbalized, but still very much there, expectations You know, we're sitting in my office and she's going on and on about how kind her dad is, how he loves to surprise her with gifts, and how he loved to take them on vacations and just do all these things. And I'm just, I'm looking at the groom saying, can you hear what she expects you to do? I hear him talk about how wonderful it was to have a mom that never went to work. She was always taking care of the house and she cooked a wonderful meal every weekend or every every evening and... Do you hear what he kind of expects? When I ask them questions about finances, usually something about fears will come up, especially on his part. Usually the marriages I'm, I'm working with are, are, they're like 22, 23 years old. They're just at the beginning of a career. And so they're worried about financial stability. She's usually worried about something like, I wonder if based on his past Indiscretions if he's going to always think that I'm good enough for him. And they, they don't say these things straight at me. We have to talk about other things and then we kind of dig beneath. And I wonder if, if texts like this need a, a more subtle approach like that. Why was Herod so concerned? I mean, I think Herod would have, would have been really interested in having a savior. I mean, who doesn't want to be saved? Herod, um, he, he would definitely be interested in God being with us. Herod was living at a time and in a culture where there is no such thing as an atheist in first century Palestine. I'm not saying that Herod was a wonderful guy, but he definitely believed in the existence of God, and if he could have God on his team, he would be very interested in that. And then peace, Herod would love some peace. He, after all, was in the pocket of Rome who held the peace as Drew taught us last week at the tip of a spear. Herod did everything to maintain the peace else he'd lose his position with Rome. So he would not mind a savior. He would not mind God being on his side and he certainly would not mind peace in the land. But he still panics. He panics. So let's read the text again. And see what Matthew is drawing our attention to. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, or Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, O oh, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's just the text on the surface. But if you'll go to the next slide, I wonder if we start to highlight some titles that, that Matthew really wants us to catch. Herod the king, I think, has a concern very clear concern for this king of the Jews. The Christ is just another word for the anointed one, the Messiah, the coming promised Jewish king. And then he hears of this prophecy that there's going to be a ruler rise up. Herod was concerned because another king had shown up. And this is what's true about kings is that kings make other kings quite nervous. Kings make other kings quite nervous. Um, this is how history works out, right? So um, imagine Saul and David trying to share a throne. Even in one kingdom, there, there's a battle over a throne. David, I think he maintained the utmost integrity, but he was the anointed king. Saul already had the throne, and you see the battle between the two. Saul couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle it. He was, he was so nervous about this other king. A couple of generations later, the kingdoms split. Then you have Rehoboam, the rightful heir to the throne, and Jeroboam, who takes the ten northern tribes and splits the country. And there's a battle over power, over who gets to be king. So what will we do? We'll just make two kingdoms. Sometime later, King Hezekiah is staring down the city walls as King Sennacherib of Assyria marches up to Jerusalem. And basically sends a message to Hezekiah saying something along the lines of, you can fight if you want, but you don't know how many kingdoms I have just mowed down on my way here. It will not take long before we do the same thing to you, Hezekiah. Hezekiah begs God to not let this king upset this kingdom. And God answers. And miraculously, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers just fall dead. Kings have a hard time with one another. They seldom play nicely. Okay, well, what do rival kings have to do with Christmas? His name is Jesus. His name is Emmanuel. He is peace. These are clear Christmas themes. They're also central themes to the gospel itself. Salvation, the presence of God, Peace with God, reconciliation to him, reconciliation among one another. Key Christmas ideas, key gospel ideas. Where does king fit? Well, let's take the idea that the gospel is at the core of Christmas. I think we can all agree with that. The gospel is at the core of Christmas. And run with it a little bit. Um, it seems like every Hallmark movie or every Netflix special now that has anything to do with Christmas is always ending somewhere where someone discovers the true meaning of Christmas. Um, I think the gospel is going to have a lot to do with the real answer to that question. Um, so, what I want to do is, I want to first look at an ancient document called the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest statements outside of the Bible written to summarize biblical teaching. It's actually considered a gospel summary. It's not anywhere near on par with Scripture. It has no inspiration behind it, no authority that Scripture bears. But when you're bringing in new converts into the church, they're trying. the, the Bible doesn't give you, like, here's what we believe in one chapter or less. It's, it's 66 books, and so they, they put into a short statement this, this kind of concise, this is what we believe. And it's the Apostles' Creed. So if you can go to the the next slide there. One of the most famous summaries of the gospel right here. Many in this room may have it memorized. If it seems familiar, we do have its lyrics either in part or in full in a couple of songs that we sing from time to time. But it starts out with a statement about God. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And then the big section in the middle is all about Jesus. And then it kind of has this catch-all. We do the Holy Spirit and then all these other things. So I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. That's not Roman Catholic. That's universal Catholic. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. One of the most famous gospel summaries you can imagine. And uh, for all that our particular church tradition um, finds a little discomfort in the creeds, this is a useful one to teach your children. There's a lot of really good orthodox stuff right there, okay? But I want to zoom in on two lines. Can you go to the next slide? Right there. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That's Christmas. The very next line is he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. That's Easter. Went from Christmas to Easter in two lines. Nothing in between. This is, as much as I love the Creed, my problem with it. Because if you go to the next slide, we'll see the verses that go with that. So it it goes from Matthew 1, nothing in Mark about being born of the Virgin Mary. Luke 2, and then John 1, kind of, if you're really reading between the lines. That's the birth narrative. So the creed goes there, and then it skips almost the entire Gospels and goes to the end. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 18. This confession that is designed to encapsulate what Christians believe skipped the vast majority of the four Gospels. 89 chapters in the Gospels, and the Creed skips 76 of them. About 85% of the Gospels are just left out of the Great Apostles' Creed. Now, to be fair, there's a lot in there, and it would be hard to summarize. But there's a lot in there that's really important. And when we get connected to creedal statements, we can get lost from the full breadth of the Gospel. Narrative. Doesn't actually matter, though, that they skip over all that stuff. I want to go to a passage in Isaiah 52, which I think sets up what it is the gospel ought to be and what this message will contain. Notice this. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. Good news. That's the gospel. Okay, so we've got a good definition to follow, I assume. Who publishes peace? There's Drew's dove who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, there's Michael's cross, who says to Zion, your God reigns, the voice of your watchmen, those watching out over the city walls, they lift up their voice, together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion, there's Jim's manger, God has returned. All of those important aspects of the gospel. But if you'll go to the next slide, the good news really, really has a lot to do with this idea right here. That your God reigns. And I am concerned that when we skip over 85% of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we miss one of the central elements to their message to the gospel is the reign and rule of God as king. The good news has something to do with salvation and presence of God and peace, but it has so much to do with him reigning In fact, I don't think that I'm overreaching when I say that the the message, the king has come, is the good news. And when the king comes, peace is available. When the king comes, salvation is available. When the king comes, God is now with us. But the gospel message, at least out of the mouth of Jesus, a reliable source, by the way, is that the king is here. So I want to spend some time. We can't go through all the Gospels. Steve was teasing me about how long my slides are. Um, I would love to go through all the Gospels. I left John out just for the sake of time. But if you want to have a conversation about John talking about Jesus as King, let's have some coffee. But we're going to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And just see, what is this message? What's all that stuff in the middle that the Apostles' Creed left out? First of all, shortly after beginning his message in Luke 4, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's anointed me. That's a kingly term. You anoint kings. The anointed one is another word for the Messiah, which is another word for the Christ, which is another word for God's promised King. Okay, so we have one king element there in Luke's gospel. What about later in Luke's chapter 4? When it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place, that being Jesus. And when people, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of salvation, of peace, of God being with you. No, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the, towns, to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. That's why I came. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Okay, well, what about Mark? In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is, <laughs> he is forgiving sins, healing people, scandalous things, I know. But he says, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he's reading people's minds at this point, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, the the implied answer to which is easier, it's easier to say someone's sins are forgiven because you can't prove that. Much easier to say that. Jesus says, just to demonstrate that I can actually do that, I'm going to heal him too. And then he calls himself the son of man right there in the middle. That is a royal term from Daniel 7. And it was scandalous to call yourself such things in the first century. They knew what he was saying. That he is the high and exalted one at the right hand of the ancient of days, one of my favorite names for God the Father. The son of man is Jesus saying, I'm that one in Daniel 7. The one you've been hoping for, that's me. And it amazed them. So he's making claims to being this royal figure. He is demonstrating authority to heal and to forgive. And then we have to ask what kind of king is he going to be? He's going to be a very strange king, nothing like King Herod. Very strange, because in Mark chapter 10, famous verses, but it shall not be so among you, talking about the pecking order. They're they're wanting to rule over one another. Jesus says, it's not going to be that way among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. That's a weird kingdom. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Really strange kingdom. For even the Son of Man, there's that title again, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is setting up not only the fact that he is the king, but that this kingdom is going to be wildly different than anything you've ever seen before. This is going to be the longest text I'm going to read. Again, Steve was teasing me. For how long this is. But we're going to read Mark's crucifixion account. In the gospel of Mark. um, It is almost comedic. How many times. The gospel writer. Wants to call Jesus the king. In Mark chapter 15 alone. He is either called. King Jesus, king of the Jews, the Messiah, or he's talked of having a royal robe or a crown or being lifted up as hailed and worshiped, all these things in one chapter, 13 times. Mark can't stop talking about the fact that here at the culmination of that gospel moment when Jesus is about to be nailed to that cross, he keeps calling him king. So I'll start in verse 16 to be kind. Of Mark chapter 15, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, there's a royal term, and twisting together a crown of thorns, again, this kingdom seems strange, but it's royal nevertheless, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak again and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, they picked him up, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them. Casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one at his right hand and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, and he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, that's the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And then Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. The final royal claim in Mark chapter 15. Now, I know that most of the times that Jesus is described as a, a king in this chapter, it has this iron, like, ironic tone to it. It's, it's mocking him. But you would have never guessed that a king would set up a a perpetual kingdom by dying on a cross. Anyway, Mark is pointing out the absurdity, all the upside-down nature of this kingdom, and he is very clearly presenting, this is, at that pregnant gospel moment, a king. And that matters. It's all over the gospels. Um, One of the things I'm going to challenge you to do is to spend more time in the gospels. And uh, if you will commit to just circling or underlining every time that you see Jesus taking on a royal quality or being worshipped as as someone of very great importance or just being respected as someone with the authority of a king, just start marking that down. I'll keep you steadily supplied with pens because you'll run out of ink. It's everywhere. So if the Gospels consistently tell the story that Christmas was about the king coming to set up an alternative-style kingdom... What do we do with that how should we respond well like most kings this king requires our allegiance he requires our allegiance back into the gospels in matthew 4 it says from that time jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand repent it's like your allegiance to me looks like changing from your ways and following me in a similar story in Mark chapter 1, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the gospel of God, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And You respond to it by repenting and believing it. This king requires a, an allegiance, a turn away from our own devices toward the things of the kingdom. So what happens if we don't? Can I, can I have... The the saving part, the God with us part, and then the peace part. And can, can the allegiance piece please, please be a little optional? In Mark 8, Jesus calls the crowd to him with his disciples. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, in other words, whoever does not demonstrate allegiance to me, of him, the son of man, there's the royal title again, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Allegiance seems mandatory in this case. Let's leave the Gospels for just a second and see what the Apostle Paul says as he reflects on this message of the kingdom. In Philippians 2, he's talking about Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. There's that Mark 10 material again. Being born in the likeness of men, there's Christmas. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's Easter. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, made him king, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow doesn't say everyone who likes Jesus or wants to follow Jesus will bow. It says every knee will bow. And I think we can read into that by choice or by force. There is no way that you get to avoid recognizing the king. But if it's by choice, then I think that Christmas means something altogether different for us. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is king to the glory of God the Father. All too often, we don't preach the gospel with this kingly flavor to it. And I think even less do we talk about Christmas with this kingly flavor to it. Why is that? Um... We said before that kings make other kings nervous, but truth be told, kings make you and I nervous. Kings bother us. Part of it is our culture. We're very suspicious of authority figures. But part of it is, maybe go back to those premarital questions. If I I were to ask you, what do you love? If I could find out, what do you love? Well, I love being saved. I love the idea that God's, like on my team, and I really love peace. Like, who doesn't love peace? I love those things. Okay. Well, what do you expect then? Oh, well, I expect to have all of that, but I'd also, like, expect my own independence. And, uh, and I think that I, I want to hold on to my rights, right? I'm a person, and I get to, I get to choose for me, right? What are you afraid of? <laughs> I'm really afraid of the idea that Jesus might be king when all I wanted was a lifeguard. I just wanted a lifeguard, but I'm really worried that this king thing is real. In fact, I know it is in most cases, and I'm just kicking the can down the road, refusing to submit in allegiance, in obedience. Um, If that is our fear, and if that's how we're going to approach this, if the idea of having someone rule over you is just so undesirable that you'd rather... You'd rather see if you could piece together your own version of the gospel. I'd recommend you not do that, to say the least. For a host of reasons, but the the biggest one would be what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I could translate that another way. The one who has sworn his allegiance to me. I and the Father are one. I knew I'd sneak John in there. The one who swears an allegiance to me. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Did we not demonstrate that we were wanting to be part of this thing called the church, part of your plan of salvation? Didn't we do all those things? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You never swore your allegiance to me as your king. So you can't have my kingdom. Now, sobering though this particular passage is, let me encourage you, it doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. We have a good, loving, kind king that loves to give things to his citizens of his kingdom. We have to remember that the king rewards the faithful. He really does. He doesn't just let you skate in barely so that you're just kind of say. He rewards the faithful. In fact, he rewards the faithful with the other things we've already talked about in this series. He rewards the faithful by giving them Jesus as a savior. He rewards the faithful by putting God in us Emmanuel, he rewards the faithful by making peace with the Father through the sacrifice of the Son and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And these things, brothers and sisters, are only available to those who follow him as their king. It's a complete package. You can't, you can't go all a la carte on this one. When you bend the knee to him as king, you get Jesus, Emmanuel, peace, Christmas really isn't about a cute baby Jesus being born in a manger. It is about the heir to the kingdom of heaven arriving and establishing his kingdom. Why was Herod so nervous? Because the real king had arrived and because unlike Herod, this king's reign would be from the right hand of the father, would have no end, and would have no rivals. Herod's rule vanished in just a few years so temporary, so small, so weak and pathetic in the grand scheme of things. The gospel is a message of salvation, presence, and peace available because the true king has come. The true king willingly went to the cross, and the true king has made many of us citizens to his kingdom. So, how do we respond to that? Give yourself over to this king, And I don't want this to be a sermon about do more, try harder. So I I thought of what are some practical things we can do such that following this king is is more natural to us. First of all, faithful citizens know their kingdom's story. I'm going to give you these versions and then I'm going to tell you like how I would say these in a different way. Faithful citizens know the kingdom's story. Faithful citizens know their king's character. Faithful citizens serve for their kingdom's benefit. And faithful citizens submit to their king's judgment. So if you'll allow me to to translate these into action items, if you want to know your kingdom's story, immerse yourself in the word of God. Like, read the Bible constantly constantly. A little bit of a do more try harder I apologize but I don't apologize for what I'm asking for if you want to be a good citizen know our story know what God is like if you want to serve your king well understand the character of the king read the four gospels more than anything else I make no apologies for that recommendation in fact I know we want to say all scripture is God breathed and useful of course it is thank you Paul but it doesn't mean that it's all the same. Genesis to Malachi, were pointing toward God's plan coming to fruition in Jesus. And Acts through Revelation are explaining the ripple effect of this Jesus. The story of Jesus is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we should read them far more than we read anything else. When you do, it's no surprise that he's the king. It's all he talks about in the Gospels. When you do, it's no surprise that he insists on our obedience. And when you do, it's no surprise that he rewards the faithful. Serving for our kingdom's benefit, love the church like Jesus does. I don't even need you to love Sonny Brooks specifically like Jesus does. I'd appreciate it, but I don't need that to be the case. I'm talking about the people of God wherever they are. Love them and serve them like Jesus does. They are, after all, co-citizens in this kingdom. Submitting to the king's judgment looks like trusting the Holy Spirit to transform you through the hard work of obedience to the king. I'm not up here to say that following Jesus is, is easy, but I will say that it's joyful, even when it's complicated. That the spirit is faithful, that's one of those good gifts the king gives to his people. These four things could really help us understand what this king is like and follow him better. So, if Christmas is a season highlighted by the joy of giving to others, let's likewise remember that nothing will produce as much joy as giving ourselves completely to the service of the only true, good, wise, and righteous king. The king has arrived. Merry Christmas. To whom will you swear your allegiance this Christmas? Um, Yesterday I was sitting down at our kitchen table, uh, working on some of this stuff, going through my notes, and my my four-year-old, my daughter, came up and she she wanted to help me. Um, And I said, okay. And I asked her, what do you think I should tell everybody tomorrow at church? What do you think I should say? And these, these are her words verbatim. She wanted to help my sermon, so this is what she said. She said, we tell Jesus that we always obey him, and we do what we're supposed to, and we worship him. I thought, that's a good answer. And I asked her, why do we do that? And She said, because he's the boss. (laughs) And uh, the great thing is, she has no idea how right she is. She's got the rest of her life to figure that out. But it just underscores how simple the gospel is, that a four-year-old girl can get it. So we're going to conclude our time here with uh, the reflection cards. I've had one of these for each message so far. So you have Matthew 2, 6 there on the front. On the back, I just want you to think for a second. If in this room Jesus is your Savior, honestly, have you also submitted to him as your sovereign king? Think through that, it's really, really important. By the way, there's there's no way you can actually have one without the other, but we live as if we have one and don't the other. Two, how is the spirit moving you to submit to Jesus' rule in obedience today? I don't want this to be some idea that, oh look at how much stuff there is in the Gospels that I hadn't really paid all that much attention to. And I want this to be something that, like, I have to respond to this. If he is my king, I have to respond to this. And I want this to be a moment where you, you ask the Spirit to demonstrate an area in your life where probably, in our cases, we have assumed the role of kingship over this particular area And we need to submit that to the real king. Let's pray. Father, forgive us where in our enthusiasm for the good things you give us, we sometimes miss you. And Father, we thank you so much for your willingness to be patient with us. We are, after all, fickle people. God, assert your rule over our lives. Um, Teach us that you are the only one with the power to do what is right every time. And you're the only one that can always, always be trusted. Where we fail to understand why you're leading us in obedience in whatever particular direction May we remember just how all-knowing and all-loving and all-powerful you are. In that, we place our hope. And in that, we get to experience the real, deep, abiding joy of Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.